Okay, if you brought your Bibles tonight, open up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, if you brought a Bible. Uh, look, y'all, we're studying this summer in our time that we have together, our very brief time we have together, uh, something of the, uh, of the doctrine of man, if you want to be all theological about it. Um, uh, more specifically, the doctrine of what the Bible means when it says that you and I were created in the image of God. Uh, last week, I tried to pitch to you that what that phrase means is that we were created to live in the story that God is telling about the world, the one that He is putting together. Uh, I'm using as my material here, if any of you want to sort of follow up on this and read some more, uh, um, a book by uh, Dr. Richard Pratt, who is the former Old Testament professor of uh, uh, Old Testament professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida, and uh, a friend of mine as well, uh, and a great guy, and a very great book to look at. To begin to understand who we are, I was talking to somebody just uh, uh, this weekend uh, about a lot of the different struggles that people at Ole Miss go through, and it's not just at Ole Miss, it's everywhere, uh, but about this struggle that people have to figure out while they're here who exactly they're going to be. That's the real issue, because the way in which I act and the way in which I react to my surroundings is largely based on where you see yourself in this story that you're telling or this story that you're living. Uh, and so in many ways, last week's discussion was a question of, you know, who am I? What am I uh, about as an individual? Well, today I want to take the next step from that. In other words, I don't necessarily want to talk about our being, but I want to talk about our doing. Okay, That is, it's very natural when you begin to ask the question, who am I, to next ask the question, well, what am I supposed to do? What am I doing here? Now, ladies, bear with me for just a second, because this kind of ends up being much more directed to the guys. Um, th there's something at which a guy, if he really begins to think about this, that it'll really resonate with him. And so, gentlemen, see if you can track with me on this. In your future, especially in the next 10 years or so, gentlemen, you're going to find that most people who meet you for the first time <laughs> really only have one substantive question that they're going to ask you once they ask your name, right? You know, as soon as you meet and shake somebody's hand uh, and say, yeah, good to meet you, I'm Les Newsom." Uh, if they want to make any kind of conversation with you at all, the very next question they're going to ask is, so, Les, what do you do? Lots of you guys have already faced it because, you know, when you start to graduate, the closer you get to that senior year and that sort of junior year, it's really all the older gentlemen want to talk to you about, right? It's like, so, almost done with school, really? That's terrific. So what are you getting ready to go do with your life, Right? Now, look, for the last 40 years, at least in American youth culture, this has been a great anxiety-producing question, <laughs> right? Uh, some of you may have seen the great movie in the 60s called The Graduate that kind of helped sort of solidify that weird sense of displacement that a lot of people feel when they're trying to figure out what in the world am I supposed to do. Um, in many ways, it's sort of extended and become a cultural thing. Uh, your generation, by the way, is drawing a lot of attention from people about this question of what do we do because your generation's having a hard time deciding what they want to do. Um, there is an epidemic among your ilk, as it were, 
uh, of trying to figure out what we want to do. And so they've created, oh, and there's a name for it. Uh, have you anybody read this article that said that like a lot of these people don't know what they want to do, and so they kind of move back into their homes after college? Adult adolescence. Adult adolescence. What a clever name! That's not the one I was thinking of, but somebody gave it kind of a weird name, adult adolescence. But it had a, like a generation something or other. Um, but that one's I like that one better. Uh, maybe we'll coin that phrase on the podcast, adult adolescence. Um, but anyway, they're living at home, working at like a Starbucks or things like that, and trying to figure out what they want to do long term. You know, nothing against Starbucks. Starbucks got great benefits and a pretty good job. Doggone it. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> he said, not even want to offend the room of uh, Starbucks workers out there in the place. Um, what we get though in the Bible is some extraordinarily good help on this, and two twin insights that quite honestly have the power to really transform the way that we think about what we do. But for a second, I want you to consider how closely related our being is, who I think I am, to what I do. And a lot of times I would suggest that we don't spend near enough time thinking about what I do. Who you are as a person, your character is molded very largely by the things that you do. What is it that, that, uh, uh, that you spend your time in the midst of, right? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we get something that theologians refer to as the cultural mandate. That's a phrase you need to remember because it's kind of a big, big topic as you begin to consider the question of what we are to do as people trying to follow after God. The cultural mandate. In other words, God has given us a mandate, a command to be something to the world. Uh, so who, who would read for me um, uh, verse uh, 28 there? Anybody be willing to read here? Nice and loud and project real good. Thanks, Clark. Read that for us. If you God want. blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Roll over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Okay, remember, last week we said that what it meant to be in the image of God was to be a citizen in His kingdom. You remember that these ancient Near Eastern cultures, whenever kings would want to establish their reign throughout their province, would make these statues of themselves, these likenesses, or what the same Hebrew word is for image here in Genesis chapter 1. And they would place these things all throughout their country in order to remind the people of who is really in charge. Uh, Richard, in the, his book, Design for Dignity, tells a story about traveling to Poland, uh, communist Poland, uh, during uh, a time in which there was still this great sort of upheaval over uh, d- democracy versus communism. And at one point, Richard described driving through a major uh, uh, square in the center of um, Warsaw. And he noticed that in this square, there was this beautiful circle of big red flags with the, uh, the golden star and crescent, that famous um, Russian sort of presence there. And in the center of all these flags were these numerous statues. And as they got up closer to him, Richard said that he noticed, you know, were these great people of history? Were they you know, uh, early Polish uh, settlers or something like that? And what they were were statues of Russian soldiers, you know, hats and guns and everything. And he said it was such a strange sight that he asked his driver, you know, what's the deal with these statues all over town? And he said that the driver, just as his face sort of fell, and he looked and said, you know, those statues are all over Warsaw now, and they're there to remind us who is really in charge. 
Uh, and Richard said it was a very powerful reminder to show what an image, even just a statue of a soldier, can do as a symbol of very cruel oppression, how it can f- brand itself on people's psyches, right? How about this? What was the very first thing that happened after um, uh, the Americans invaded um, uh, um, um, Iraq? What's the capital city? Um, Baghdad. What's the first thing that the people of Baghdad did? tore down the statue, and it was all over the television. Why? Because there was something powerful about removing the image of oppression, right? God is saying that whether or not we have statues, you know, of our leaders all over or not, the ability for images to represent its authority is constant. In other words, you're representing somebody right now, and God looks and says, my people represent me in the way in which I want them to. How? Two ways. Two big points I want to try to unpack for you tonight, uh, uh, and then we'll have a time of sort of interacting. By the way, please uh, be thinking, uh, I love in the last sort of ten minutes of our time together to hear from y'all about how we can sort of uh, think about ourselves as being students at Ole Miss in the face of this kind of material. So, you know, in order to avoid that awkward silence later, you might conjure up something to uh, offer up now. So, anywho, two things I think that Genesis 1, verse 28 says for the cultural mandate. Number one, God says that His people are to be about the business of multiplication. And number two, about the business of dominion. Multiplication and dominion. Those are the two big things that are involved in being a representative of God in His image. Okay, number one, multiplication. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, um, it's not as obvious as you thought. By multiplication, we mean sort of different kind of levels of meaning to that word. Okay, and I'll see if I can go through a couple of them real quick. Level number one is kind of the obvious level. Uh, God looked at his people and said, I would like for you to have children. (laughs) Um, Multiply the race. uh, Reproduce yourself. Um, Adam and Eve were commanded to have children. Now look, y'all, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but you live in a world where... Children are universally thought to be nuisances. And if you don't believe me, ladies, just fast forward here to 5 or 10 or 15 years to when at least some of you, it's probable, will have uh, 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 gotten pregnant and are preparing, you're doing the nesting thing, preparing for that little one to come. Uh, Just wait until you begin to hear the comments of the people around you, right? Well, good luck now. Prepare for your life to end. You will be tied to that child, blah, 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 blah. And guys, you'll get the same thing. (laughs) Oh, so she's expecting, huh? Buckle up, pal. Now, don't get me wrong. There's great shifting changes, uh, plate shifting changes that happen when a child comes along. But Christians don't talk that way. The Bible always looks and says that children are a blessing and something that we ought to be excited about and invite. And, you know, don't get that look on your face, ladies. It's all of a sudden, you know, within like a month of your wedding, you turn up pregnant. I, that's happened a fair amount of times before. Uh, it's a little too vivid in it, Mary Grace. I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, I just got a little glimpse of you over there grinning, and that's too funny. Um, <clears throat> anyway, um, don't get depressed about something like that. Okay, Mary Grace is going to leave, never come back. Last, last time to argue. Sorry, I'm kind of embarrassed myself with that. Yes, we'll move on right past this. Edit from the podcast. Um, (laughs) The Bible looks and says children are a blessing. Now, please, I do not agree with some who look and say, therefore, you're wrong 
and I'm not going to get real into this here, but you're wrong to hinder the process of having children. I don't think the Bible is near that explicit. I think that's a choice that a couple has to make with each other uh, about how they want to deal with the process of, um, of the wisdom of having children. Uh, and there are ways I do believe that people can um, uh, wrestle through that question without uh, uh, sinning against God at all. I differ a little bit from some of our Roman Catholic brothers in Christ uh, who have stronger feelings about the family and about issues of birth control. I don't know, maybe you have questions about that. You can say that for the Q&A at the end. I simply want to look and say children are not a bad thing. Okay, So multiplication in one sense is a good thing. Secondly, though, notice that it's not limited to having children because remember we're to create... Uh, not just children, but also not just more images of God, but they're images of God. In other words, there's a sense in which the process of multiplication, <laughs> you've not fulfilled just by having a child. Look, y'all, animals can reproduce. That's not a big deal. What we're trying to create is an image of God. And see, what the Bible says is because of the fall of man, which we'll get to a whole lot more next week, because of that great fact, when children are born... <laughs> Uh, it's not natural for them to act like they're in the image of God. You follow me? And therefore, children have to be trained, raised up, fashioned, formed, taught, admonished, encouraged. Okay? In other words, the, the, the act of raising children is involved enough to where it requires a lot of input on your part and a lot of work. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears go into uh, raising a child. Um, <clears throat> what that means, y'all, is that there for every single Christian, and this means for you too, because I know you're like, kind of like going, why are we talking about this? I don't have kids. Um, the reason is, is because we're all supposed to be living lives that are about the business of preserving God's kingdom for the next generation. Now look, that's not all that distant from where you are. You are to be thinking about your life in such a way that says, <laughs> I want for the future to be good for the people that come after me. Um, in many ways, we are wildly short-sighted when we're in college. Um, let me take a small little example here. And guys, forgive me, I'm going to pick on you again. There really is something to be said for the disaster that you leave your, pla- your dwelling places in once you leave. And look, I mean, you know, if you point at somebody else, what, you're pointing back at yourself with a number of fingers. There's no one who's more guilty of this than I am. And people who, ever, <laughs> people who lived with me when I was in uh, seminary are laughing if they ever heard me say this. But there really is something to be said about, what am I leaving for the people that will come after me? Is there a disaster in my wake? Or is there a sense in which I'm taking responsibility to make sure that the legacy that I leave, whether it be for my children or my children's children, which is kind of distant for us, or whether it be for the next class that comes through Ole Miss, is it going to be something that's that's established in the image of God? Look, y'all, brand new crop of freshmen coming in this fall. What are you going to do about that? You had to go through your stuff your freshman year, now didn't you? <laughs> how, how long does it take before we come to Ole Miss and we stop being so self-absorbed and worrying about the impression that I've made on this particular campus or how I fit in or how I get through this? Come on, y'all. How are we looking at RUF as a place where I can reach out to that next generation and befriend those freshmen and look and say, look, just come with me. We're going over to uh, 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 Ashley and Mary Gwen's house tonight. Come on with me and we'll, um, uh, and, 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 and I'll give you a ride over there. And you talk with somebody about it. Little acts like that, y'all, end up sort of reproducing the image of God because you build, build real relationships in it. Now, one small little uh, uh, discord, uh, 
uh, asterisk at the bottom of this. <clears throat> in Christian theology, we've always placed a big deal upon the children of believing people. In my particular denomination, we placed such a high view on the children of believers that we actually baptize children. Uh, uh, the legacy of Presbyterianism has as one aspect of it, and it certainly isn't consumed by this idea, but it's one little idea, that because children are very uniquely considered in God's kingdom and because there's such a great emphasis put on passing on that legacy, that we actually bring children into the covenant community by baptism. It doesn't imply to, to, uh, that that child is uh, uh, saved and been you know, regenerated or whatnot, but it anticipates the fact that God places a special measure of blessing upon the children of believers. Listen to what Pratt says about this. He says, Throughout Scripture, God treats the offspring of believers as those who are expected to be the heirs of saving grace. That's a great way to put it. Where we look and say, I expect this child to believe one day. I'm raising them to believe. I don't know about y'all, but I've talked to many of you who look and would say that you weren't raised to believe in Jesus. You were raised to doubt in Jesus. You know, very early on, we began to respond to the initial measures of grace. A lot of times we heard from our churches, well, do you really believe? Do you really believe? Instead of wanting to build on those ideas. And say, um, it thrills me to know that when I look at my children right now, and I talk to them, you know, sweetheart, do you understand that you're a sinner? I, sh- I do, Daddy. I make mistakes all the time. Well, what do we do about that? Well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins for that. Well, do you love Jesus for that, sweetheart? I sure do, Daddy. Now, do I want to look at them and go, yeah, but do you really believe? I mean, is it really, really, really real? You see, our emphasis on the children of believers looks and says, God bless it. I want God to build on that. I don't want to destroy that or tear that down. Richard goes on. He says, for instance, the covenant with Noah involved Noah and his family. Genesis 7, 1 and 9, 1, and 1 through 9. Promises were made to Abraham and his descendants. Genesis 17. Moses declared that God's revelation belonged to, quote, us and our children. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The promises made to King David were for him and his descendants. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and all the promises of the covenant. Even the New Testament affirms that this promise of the Spirit is for you and for your children. Acts chapter 2 verse 29. And the Apostle Paul finally declared that the children of believers are holy, set apart from the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now look, this is not one of those issues that I'm willing to like get in a big fight about. I simply want to offer to you, some of y'all who did not grow up in Presbyterian backgrounds, uh, why it is that we look at at baptizing children the way in which we do. It's because we want to fulfill the mandate of multiplication and to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The last sense of multiplication is pretty obvious. Since we're creating images of God, it means we're about the business of bringing God's truth to bear on every area of creation. We fulfill the mandate of multiplication when we preach the gospel. Every time we evangelize, every time we invest ourselves in the life of another person and bring God's word to bear on the life of that person through an, an, an encouragement to repent and to believe, uh, uh, and to embrace Jesus as He's offered in the gospel, we end up fulfilling the mandate to multiply uh, God's images. We end up helping God fashion His images. Okay? So that's the first big idea, multiplication. The second one is much easier, and in my opinion, much more thrilling. In many ways, the multiplication issue can be very spiritually oriented. The second one is the issue of dominion. God says, not only do I want you about multiplying, but I want you to take dominion. 
Listen to what um, uh, 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 Richard says on this one. He says, Adam and Eve were gardeners in Eden, but this limited responsibility was not the full extent of God's calling. God had designed for them ever-expanding responsibilities. Now think about this. God sits Adam and Eve in the middle of the garden and says, I want you to tend it, make it lovely, uh, 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 find what all is there. But Richard's saying that, that those responsibilities were meant to kind of expand like a, like a pebble in a lake with ripples that would go out from it. He says, in primitive societies, people exercise dominion by cultivating the earth, domesticating animals. In the days of David and Solomon, Israel developed extensive communication systems and international trade. Daniel subdued the earth by learning the wisdom of the Babylonians and ruling as an effective politician. Throughout the Bible, our spiritual ancestors exercised dominion in countless ways wherever they went. Y'all, this is kind of cool, I think, because what the Bible says is that taking dominion over the earth is so much more than being careful to take care of the earth. Now, one little small note. It's not less than that, by by the way. Christians kind of ought to be the best environmentalists. We ought to be the ones that are doing the best research and the ones that are bringing the best truths to bear on taking care of the creation that God has given us. Okay, so don't think that the uh, the environmentalist movement is just for you know uh, uh, some certain sector of our political world. All Christians are interested in making sure that God's earth is preserved in its beauty, but it's so much bigger than that, y'all. Um, all legitimate human work that is done to advance God's kingdom is something that He smiles upon. Okay? That is, work was created, and the command to work was created, y'all, before the fall. (laughs) This is Genesis chapter 1. Man doesn't sin until Genesis chapter 3. But a lot of us get this inherent feeling that work is like inherently bad. Well, you know, I just got to go to work in the morning. I don't have anything to do, but I got to go to work. And we complain and we're dour and we look at it as if it's mundane, boring kinds of things. But then we go to church and we suddenly begin to hear this phrase that I grew up. I don't know if you ever grew up with it. But they look and say, well, you know, there's some of you out there that God may be calling to, drum roll please, full-time Christian service. Full-time Christian service. As if there was something called part-time Christian service, right? Um, I'm just one of the part-time Christians. It's the ministers out there. It's, you know, the Anna McDowells and the Gray Flores and the Tyler Halls and the Sam Tass and the Les Newsoms. They're the ones that are super spiritual, right? Why? Because they're in the ministry. <laughs> now, all those five people just mentioned are laughing on the inside of themselves. Uh, Sarah Catherine's in ministry as well. She knows what I'm talking about. Um, that's a terribly uncomfortable thing to be told, as if you thought that you were more spiritual, by the way. But look, what, the, what Genesis 128 is saying is, is if God has called you to go be an accountant, guess what? <laughs> there is nothing less spiritual about going and being an accountant for God's kingdom than it is if you go and be a preacher. You follow me? God smiles upon every legitimate human task that is done to say, I'm engaging in this to advance God's kingdom. I'll make this world a better place. Medical school. I mean, that's a huge thing to engage in the practice of the healing of people. (laughs) I I think, to me, physicians have such a beautiful calling, especially when you read the Bible stories about Jesus' miracles. All Jesus did was heal while he was here. (laughs) Uh, And we don't get to do that. 
uh, necessarily. If you get into any sort of a faith healing medicine, I need to talk to you about that. <laughs> By the way, have y'all ever seen the old Far Side cartoon? This is a little brief, little asterisk, <laughs> where it's got the picture of the of the uh, of the doctors in the surgery, the two surgeons, uh, and they've got this <laughs> patient laid out in front of them with the drape over and everything, and they got their masks on and whatnot. And one guy has his hands up and he's wiggling his fingers, and the caption um, says, "Faith." Uh, faith surgeon healers, uh, faith healing surgeons or whatever. And the little bu- bubble looks over and goes, foul spirits of the duodenum, be gone. <laughs> For some reason that always cracked me up because of the idea that you would actually open someone up to faith heal them on the inside. For some reason that made me laugh. Obviously not many of you, but um, that's okay. But to be engaged in the same process that Jesus did of making sick people well, it's a big deal. Uh, to go and be, you know, uh, a secretary in a business that makes it run more efficiently, that generates income for people to work better, uh, to, to, to make a ton of money so that you can make some missionary's life possible. I had somebody once tell me, look, there's goers and there's senders. God's going to call some of you to be goers. You're going to go to Baton Rouge and work for Young Life down there to help young people uh, in a a very difficult public school system. Uh, You're going to go to the University of Virginia to help college students work through things. Um, But you might be a sender. You might be someone who makes so much money (laughs) that you're able to finance a lot of those people to do that. There's nothing less glorifying to God about that than anything else. Um, Look, y'all, this is one thing that you've got to get through your head, that God smiles upon your work. And for that reason, you can get excited about it, and it's okay to get excited about it and to take joy in it and to know that God smiles upon that. And hopefully for many of you, that opens up some encouragement to you that God's doing something. Now, let me qualify that with one little statement out to the side because it's very easy when we take that one wonderful notion and pervert it to say, wonderful, I can go and be rich and not care about anybody else. Remember how I constantly qualified that. Every uh, vocation that is legitimately done for the advance of the kingdom is something God smiles upon. Hey, don't be fooled. It's very easy to become a lawyer and begin to step on all the little people out there and to engage in a lot of the illegal practices that go on in that field, ironically, and to begin to engage in some of the illegal activity that happens in the medical uh, field or in the accounting field and cooking the books. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which people, Christians, oftentimes justify uh, a blind uh, materialism, if you will, uh, with this idea that, oh, God sees her. Les told me, you know, in the summer of 08 that every vocation is spiritual. And so therefore, I'm going to gouge the poor in the, uh, in the company that I'm working for. We don't ever say that, right? What we do is, is we never ask the question. But see, Christians always ask the question, why? Because I'm creating the image of God. And I'm not just about multiplying, but about taking dominion. And so God has given me the grace to come here and to be a mommy, And therefore, this is my domain right here. I'm a mommy. I'm a housewife, right? God's called me to do this. And if I'm going to do it to the best of my ability, I'm going to give my life to this. And every dirty diaper that I change is not just some mundane, thankless job. It is done for the advance of the kingdom. Because one day that child is going to be another agent for the kingdom. And we're going to expand it further through his influence. That's true for sanitation workers as much as it is for, um, you know, Uh, financial planners or whatever uh, people who make money are. Look, y'all, is the vocation that you're looking at, can you draw a line 
between what you're doing and how it's making the world better? And will you be one of the ones that looks and says, my vocation is going to be spent in making this world uh, better? Look, y'all, all of our work is infused with meaning. And I love this image that um, um, uh, uh, Richard gave. He said, look, he said, imagine that you have a king uh, uh, in one of these ancient Near Eastern countries that um, uh, holds in his hand uh, a handful of precious jewels. And he looks at you, his servant, and opens up his hand and says, look, these are you know, these beautiful gems which I have mined. I want you to take them and I want you to make them beautiful. They're yours for a while. Make them, make them shiny and, and, and glistening. That's your responsibility. And when we engage in the practice of raising people, whether it be children or our fraternity and sorority, fraternity brothers and sorority sisters, uh, and when we engage in the process of working to the glory of God, we're fashioning and forming beauty into what God has called us to do. Um, designed for dignity, absolutely. Uh, designed for glory as well.